Welcome to The Dividing Line. We are back again. It is Thursday. I'm looking forward to the fact that we've got a little storm system coming in over the weekend. It's going to drop us a little bit closer to normal. 105 degrees today. I think it, I think the normal is like 92. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's a cooking. And then I look, and they're expecting snow back east in New England. Uh, it's like, okay, okay. And if you're sitting there going, see, see? The Pope was right. The earth is rebelling. I just, I just stop and, and I, I think back. And it's funny. History really helps you here. But if you study the history of Joseph Smith and the dating and the time of the first vision, one of the elements in figuring out where the Smith family was was the fact that Lucy Mac Smith makes reference to uh, a lot of crop failures one year due to June snow. Well, you can find out when that was. Uh, you can you. They were keeping records back then, and um, so there was actually snow in June in uh, New York. Um, and you can figure out what year that was, and that fits into the whole timeline. The timeline that demonstrates that the first vision did not take place as Joseph Smith eventually fictionalized it. But anyway. Um, so yeah, that's, that's happened before. And that wasn't due to man in the 1800s, the early 1800s. That wasn't because of SUVs. That wasn't because of, of cow toots, um, or anything else. Um, that was just how things went. Uh, so live with it. Anyway, uh, let's start off, um, with a video. I'm not sure if, uh, this is going to work real well because, uh, Rich is on the phone, but uh, we're going to start off with a video. We are often told that King James onlyism, the worst forms of King James onlyism, we're not really saying you just have to use the King James. Actually, there are many, many people that are saying exactly that. And a couple days ago, uh, this uh, was posted. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, let me see here. Let me. I, I I do want to get this uh, information correct here. I I actually took the time to enter this in here. So there's the get info, and this is Mark Pastor Mark D Montgomery Grace Baptist Church in Eufaula, Alabama. Eufaula, Alabama. Uh, Mark D Montgomery is who we're going to be listening to here. And I'll get it back to full screen here. Let's listen to what um, Pastor Montgomery has to say. Water and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Let me tell you what those broken cisterns are. It's the NIV. It's the ASV. It's the NASV. It's the ESV. It's every false Bible that's out there. That's a broken cistern. It holds no living water. You say, Pastor, are you telling me that they, can, they don't hold any living water just because they change some words or leave out whole verses or whole chapters or whatever they leave out? You're telling me they don't hold any of the water, the living water, which is Jesus Christ? That's exactly what I'm telling you. Because it's corruptible seed. The Bible also refers to itself as the seed. And the Bible says being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible 
By the Word of God. Hey, listen, if it's got corruption in it, it's not incorruptible seed. When you change the Word of God, you don't believe me, look at the book of Revelation. When you change the Word of God, it changes God's Word. I mean, how, how simple, how hard is that to understand? When you say, for God loved the world so much that He gave His only begotten Son, you have changed what God said. You have changed the meaning of John 3.16. It changes everything. Well, it's just a preference. No. See, it makes it easier to understand. It doesn't make it easier to understand. It makes it more convoluted. So there you have... Um, now, now, I hope you, you heard what was being said there. Um, you have the absolute identification of the Word of God with the King James Version of the Bible. Uh, not only do you have a text completely taken out of context to refer to modern Bible translations and things like that. Uh, but then you have complete igno- ignorance, or just, well, he may just not even know, that the King James has had different forms in the past, that there have been changes and edits that have been made over time, and there were different versions and, and things like that. And there are still differences between the Oxford and Cambridge editions of the King James, and all that kind of stuff, you don't really worry about it, but Still, the identification with the Bible as an English translation, which did not exist for three quarters, more than three quarters of the history of the New Testament, longer than that when you include the Old Testament, that becomes the Word of God. That's why I started off the King James Only Controversy explaining to people that in the minds of the the true King James Onlyist, the Bible alone equals the King James version alone. That's, that is an absolute equation in their mind and their thinking. And you heard it right there. So the incorruptible seed is actually an English translation. So back in the day, I just grabbed this. Um, this is the Vaticanus Bible. I showed this to you a couple days ago when it first came. It's, this is just the, uh, just the Gospels, but it's, it's a very nicely done. It's actually big enough that I can read it yeah, I can still read it without my reading glasses, but I would probably want to read it without reading. Uh, I would probably want to use them. Um, but uh, this is a breakdown of the four Gospels as found in Codex Vaticanus. Now, this would be very representative, very representative, of the manuscripts that would have been present at the Council of Nicaea in 325. All right. So, what we're being told is that no one could have been saved by this because it differs from the King James Version of the Bible. So, what, what these guys believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, they don't recognize their reliance upon those that came before them. But their theory, which they present as gospel, basically says there weren't any Christians back then. I don't know how you could have any Christians until 1611, um, because you didn't... There is no manuscript that reads identical to the King James Version of the Bible, or to the Textus Receptus. Well, that's obviously the Greek foundation of it. So, do they think about that? No. 
this is this is the essence of of King James onlyism. It it ignores the history of the Bible. It ignores um, the text of the Bible, and it is only concerned about the modern American context. I've never understood why King James onlyism flourishes outside of the American South, and I don't just mean Oregon or Canada. You'll find King James onlyism in the far reaches of Africa. And I've never understood why. Because anyone who speaks more than one language should be able to see through this stuff very, very easily. But unfortunately, uh, a lot of people uh, do not. But it's out there, and it is a regular part of the IFB Preacher's Twitter feed, <laughs> uh, where that and women wearing pants are the two primary issues that that get mentioned. Um, poor, uh, poor Hillary Clinton. She gets it, uh, gets hit there all the time. Uh, okay. In the textual critical area. Uh, what did I do with that? Oh, there it is. Uh, this morning at 8 AM, Elijah Hickson at the evangelical textual criticism blog announced James snap discovers two more folios of zero six, four. Now, when I first looked at this, there's a, a picture from up on the hill of uh, St. Catherine's Monastery. And so I'm like, wow, James Snap is, is how does, how did he be, how would anyone travel there right now is, is the main thing I'm wondering about. How do you, how do you even get there um, during the days of COVID-19? Um, but once you start reading it, what, what this is, what this is, is sort of like, um, Jason Lyle discovered a planet and he did, but you know how he did it? Staring at a computer screen. Well, how'd he do that? Well, there's all these databases made available publicly that you can sift through. And of course, Jason writes computer programs and stuff. And so what you do is you find planets by looking at stars. And when the star has a regular diminishment in its brightness, in its luminosity, that's considered normally to be due to a planet passing between us and that star. So obviously that particular solar system has to be pretty much flat on to us for us to be able to see this type of thing. But we found many, many, many what are called exoplanets, planets outside of the solar system, um, by being able to chart the the stars and see when they have regular pulsations in essence um that that might that fit into the parameters of what having a a planet sort of dim it for a second or, or briefly as it passes in front of the the uh, the star between us and the star so that's what he was doing can tell he's a whole lot of fun to be around on the friday nights um doing that same thing with james snap because what's James Snap doing? He's looking through manuscripts at the uh, uh, VMR, the, the uh, Visual Manuscript Room, uh, out of Munster. And he noticed that 064 in the VMR has gaps between Matthew 2670 and 2713, and between Matthew 2730 and 2744. So it's, it's only like 14 verses. That's like a page or something like that. Um. And not sure how he did this, whether he was making a catalog 
and saw the the same material someplace else. Don't know. I didn't read all the stuff, but realized that what you he didn't discover anything. What what you can do today, which is really cool. I'm not I'm not putting this down at all. Uh, I, I think it's great that he said, hey, look at that, and hey, look at that. You put them together, hey, there it is. This is happening a lot. CSNTM has helped a lot with doing so. This, uh, CSNTM is the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts. As they're going around photographing manuscripts, they'll all of a sudden sort of notice, you know, these pages look different than other pages, and then you start doing some digging around, and what we thought was one manuscript is actually two manuscripts, where where a later manuscript has been inserted into another manuscript, um, and that's why that's one of the reasons why the number of New Testament manuscripts keeps changing, is because um, you might find out, well, we thought we had one manuscript here; it's actually two, or so that would increase the number of manuscripts, or you go, hey, wait a minute, the manuscript that contains these books in this library at this museum, that looks identical to this manuscript over here that happens to contain the different books. Oh, it's the same manuscript. It's been broken up into two two parts. And so now the number goes down because what you thought was two manuscripts is actually one manuscript. And then that's why you have to have uh, places like Munster. Then you've got to submit all that stuff and go, um, we've assigned this number to this one and this number to this one, but actually they're the same manuscript. Now, what do you do about that? Because what if someone wrote a paper on this manuscript over here that you now find is a part of this one, and you reassign this number over this one, now no one's going to know which one that is, especially if you give that number to somebody else. So this cataloging thing is very complicated, and it's very modern. Because remember, we, we've told the story before, down there in the, um, the 1550 Stephanus, um, you have uh, the story of what, what took place with Beza, where Stephanus had what we call uh, Codex Beza Cantabrigensis, Codex D. He had access to it. A lot of people didn't know that for a long time. And then it was eventually given to Beza. And so Beza has the 1550 Stephanus, which has references to the letter Beta, which is uh, Stephanus's Beta manuscript, which is Beze. But Beza didn't know it was Beze. And so he thinks now he has two manuscripts reading the same way, but it's actually the same manuscript. He just didn't realize it because there was no, there could not be, it would be impossible to have a centralized cataloging mechanism to be able to tell which manuscripts are which. And so it's only been in modern times where you can have, well, initially it was microfilm. Uh, a lot of these manuscripts were microfilmed many, many years ago. And if, you ever, if you've ever worked with microfilm, <laughs> whew, um, remember, remember the mimeograph machine? Oh, yeah, that was about the same level of technology. Um, yeah. So, modern times, great. It's awesome. It's wonderful uh, to be able to do this type of stuff. Congratulations to James Snap. But, see, when I first read this, I'm, I'm trying to figure James Snap with that, 
massive Church of Christ beard um, hitchhiking through the desert to get to St. Catherine's Monastery, when actually he was sitting in his office staring at, uh, at large print screens uh, and uh, tracked this thing down. And that's uh, that's good job, James. Well done. Um, but I, I guarantee you one thing. I, I, I can guarantee you that James Snap would rather have gone to St. Catherine's. <laughs> just, just, this, because it, you're probably aware of the fact that the Indiana Jones character was, is rumored to have been, anyway, I don't know if it was proven to have been based off of Count von Tischendorf, uh, who did go to St. Catherine's. And in those days, to get into St. Catherine's, you had to ride up in a wicker basket up over the, over the walls. Uh, so, I mean, that's called a lift, literally. Um, and um, so I, I have a feeling that, uh, that James Snap would love to go to St. Catharines if the opportunity were afforded to him. But that's not how he did this one. Did it, on, uh, did it online. That's, uh, that's good detective work. Uh, and that was just posted this morning, so I thought I'd mention that. Elijah Hickson uh, mentioned that this morning, and I think that's pretty, pretty cool uh, that that's the case. One little thing, other, one other quick thing. Um, it saddens me in light of the um, uh, panic uh, of 2020. That's what it's going to be called in future years, the panic of 2020. Um, one, of, one of our uh, rovers on Mars, uh, and this, this just disgusts me, um, the budget to keep it running has been slashed. So they're just simply not going to be able to do as many experiments even though it's there, it's our, you know, we already spent all the money to send it there. We're not going to get as much out of it uh, because the budget's been cut. Well, everybody's budget's been cut. No. A, a matter of days into this thing, we printed enough funny money to run most nations for 50 years. And we gave it away to special interests that will never do anything to enrich our lives at all. And just the amount of money that was given to various leftist organizations could have tripled their budget for exploration of space. But no, no, it, it went to line the pockets of the elites and the special interests. And a lot of, you know, whenever I talk about stuff like this, a lot of people, well, we shouldn't be doing any of that stuff anyways. That's not the government's role, blah, 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 blah. Well, Elon Musk and those folks, I think they're doing amazing things. Um, but they haven't sent anything to Mars yet. And we have. And you may not know how much of the ease of your modern life is due to the space program, but a tremendous amount of it is. Not only that, I'm just, I personally think it is a privilege to live in a day where we are seeing things that no one else has ever seen. We are learning things that no generation before us could have ever even dreamed of. A couple nights ago, I got up at 3 o'clock in the morning, and I went out in the backyard, and I set up my scope. Now, I'm in the middle of a light dome. Can't see deep space objects hardly at all from Phoenix. It's too much. Well, the air is actually not bad, real bad right now, thanks to the shutdown. Um, but the lights are still on. And so it's just, you look up and it's, it's glows. The whole sky glows. It's not, and I don't mean from starlight. I mean from streetlights. 
Anyway, but if you want to see stars and if you want to see planets, stuff that is has its own light source in essence, you can still do that from my backyard. And so I did, and I'm working on figuring out how to use my camera with my scope to take some planetary shots, some star shots, a few things like that. And uh, so I'm looking at Saturn and some of the, the, the visible moons of Saturn. Uh, Saturn has something like 64 moons of various sizes, only some of which are visible from, from Earth. But I'm thinking about Titan, which, by the way, is interesting. Titan is larger than Mercury. So why is it a moon and not a planet? Well, because it doesn't circle the sun. But obviously, that's relevant to the whole Pluto thing. You know, the big, everybody got involved with arguing, is Pluto a planet or not? Well, Pluto has a moon that's almost, uh, it's over half its own size. Um, and Titan's almost as big as Pluto, I think. Um, but the point is, Titan is a huge body, visible from Earth, and yet it has its own atmosphere. And it's so thick, no one had ever seen, no human eye, well, you couldn't see from Earth anyways, even with the best telescope, really. Um, but even when we had flown uh, Voyager by and um, things like that, we had never seen the surface of Titan until the Cassini probe, which dropped the Huygens probe into the atmosphere of Titan. And it beamed back before the atmosphere fried it. It's mainly ammonia. Um, it beamed back pictures of the surface of Titan. Now think about that. Um, what? I, I feel sorry, honestly, for the many, many people who live their lives and never, never turn the music off long enough to sit back and just be filled with wonder. Because as a Christian, God made Titan, and, and he formed that world. And to, to, to be privileged to see to, to live in a, in a day where we have, we have studied God's creation to the point where we can actually send a probe out there and see what the surface of Titan looks like from beneath the clouds. And we actually have come to understand it has massive underground oceans. The moon actually sort of wobbles in shape because of the, 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 the tides of the oceans under its surface. I mean, it's just fascinating. Uh, you, you know, it, it, it's cool stuff. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have, I wasn't planning going off on all this, but anyway, it just bugs me to no end that because of the foolishness, and I, I do believe that time will prove out, the utter foolishness of how we have responded over the past literal months, that not only will we learn less in the future, but it'll take us longer to learn what we will learn. 
There are all sorts of projects that are now on hold. Uh, maybe many that will be canceled. Um, and all because of certain people who have profited hugely uh, from the panic of 2020. All right. Uh, I was... Uh, I was putting up something called a, a sunshade. I'm not sure if you know what those is. It's sail shades. Uh, we live in Phoenix, and oh my goodness, I was uh, I was out. I had to be out in the sun, and this was shortly after sunrise a couple days ago. Man, I I had to have the SPF 100 sunscreen on, and I'm normally moving on a bike or running or something when I'm outside. But you you have to be still on a ladder for a while. Wow, the Arizona sun is astonishing. It truly is. I know those of you back east right now that are shivering and getting snowed on don't don't get this, but oi ay ay. So so I have one wall on the east side of the house that just gets blasted in the morning. You know, just poof. and so I decided I need to put one of those sunshades up on it because it it drops the amount of radiation hitting the wall by about 80%. And yet it still lets air through and stuff, so it, it, it's, it's not like putting a blanket on the house. Anyway, so I'm up there, you know, you know doing, doing the stuff you got to do, do that kind of stuff, and just feeling that sun just blasting away um, on me. And um, it reminded me, we, we live in the desert here, don't we? Uh, we really, really do. But while I was doing that, I was listening to some stuff on my phone, and I, if I recall correctly, this came up because I was listening to YouTube. So it was in a sort of rotation of stuff. So I started listening, and I'm like, oh, this is worthwhile. This is worth covering. Um, you remember about two weeks ago, we looked at Isaiah chapter 10 and we walked through the text and talked again about the fact that we have multiple places in the page of Scripture where we have a sinful act, such as in Genesis 50, the selling of Joseph into slavery, Isaiah chapter uh, uh, 10 the Assyrians coming against Israel and trampling them like mud in the streets and raping and pillaging and, and everything else. Uh, and of course, crucifixion, the son of God uh, in, in Acts chapter four as well. Um, these are places where plainly the sovereign decree of God is guiding and determining what takes place in time. There's no question about it. Um, if you believe in prophecy, you have to believe this. If you don't believe this, you have no basis for believing in prophecy. You, you, you can sit there and try to say, oh yes, I believe that Isaiah prophesied the coming of the Messiah. But when you say, but that's the only thing that's really prophesied and everything around it was just the free will actions of mankind, you clearly don't seem to understand how complicated all historical actions are. And the fact is, the continuation of the people of Israel in any means so as to be able to provide a people for the Messiah required control of the situation with the Assyrians. The Assyrians could have wiped out 
all the Jews. Wipe them out as a people. Gone. No, no ability to do anything. But God says no. That may have been their desire, but as Psalm 33 says, man plans, God plans, God's plans win. But, plainly, God then judges the Assyrians. So, their inten- the intention of their heart was evil. God's intention was good. So, Leighton Flowers puts up a video decalvinizing Isaiah chapter 10. So, I started listening to it. And what was interesting, one of the things that was interesting to me is, and I'm going to skip over because at the beginning, he has some computer voice thing, or I don't know what it was. Maybe it's an online thing. I don't know. Uh, reading uh, from Isaiah chapter 10. But what is strange is they only read um, 5 through 7. Now, it could be because this is one of the short videos, he's trying to be brief, it's fine, but that misses the compatibilistic text. <laughs> um, it, it misses the actual statements. Uh, it does have, it does at least have, verse 7, yet it does not so intend, nor does it plan so in its heart, but rather it is its purpose to destroy and to cut off many nations. So you do have the recognition that God's, got one intention, and the Assyrians have another intention. The intention that the Assyrians have is what they'll be judged on. God God has a good intention. They have an evil intention. Uh, So at least that's there. So you can have multi-intentionality in a divinely decreed act. But what was skipped over... Um, is the statement in verse 12, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the palm of his haughtiness. And then the, the king of Assyria is going on and on saying, my hand, my wisdom, I did this, I have understanding, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And then you have the most important verse that's relevant to compatibilism in the text, that's verse 15. Is the axe to boast itself over the one who chops with it? Is the saw to exalt itself over the one who wields it? That would be like a club wielding those who lift it, or like a rod lifting him who is not wood. The whole point of the illustration is that Assyria is simply the tool in God's hand. And yet, the provisionist, the anti-decretalist, we need to come up with a better term. I think anti-decretalist would be good. Uh, those that are against the decree of God deny that God has a decree. Yeah, I know it's found in the Bible, but that, it, it just means something else. Decretal deniers? Well, they would say that they've been decreed to deny, so that's how they, they get around that, I guess. Um, but here you have the very idea. Their emphasis is to say that the, and, and Leighton has gotten in trouble for this, but it's the only consistent thing that he can do. From his perspective, and he, is, he does quote from this text later on, we'll, we'll take a look at it, it's a complete misrepresentation, but we'll get to it in a second. 
is to say that the actions and intentions of the Assyrians arose outside of God's, not only God's will and God's decree, but can can only be understood as as being derived from the heart of the Assyrians. In no way they came into existence apart from God's will. So stuff exists in this universe that God did not intend to exist in this universe, but it's there anyways. And man, there's a lot of ramifications to that. A lot of ramifications to that. Um, but that's what this verse is talking about. Is the saw to exalt itself over the one who wields it? Who's wielding it? God is. So who is the active person here? Both. But which one is which? God is the one wielding the saw, wielding the axe. He's accomplishing his purpose. The Assyrian doesn't know that. The Assyrian thinks he's accomplishing his purpose. But the creator and the creation. Does that mean, is God then forcing the Assyrians? No, he's not forcing them to do anything. And it is only by the presuppositional rejection of the very possibility of a compatibilistic understanding, which is fundamental to understanding Leighton Flowers, Ken Wilson, and the entire provisionalist group. This is, this, is their, this is as much a starting place for them as the Islamic denial of the possibility of incarnation is a starting place for the Muslims. It's presuppositional. That's why you, it, just, it comes up over and over again, and it's taken as a given. It's taken as a given. So let's listen to what um, Dr. Flyers has to say here, and uh, let's compare it with, uh, with the scriptures. Um, I, I, I'm, th- I'm thinking I'm going to have to ask um, maybe Seb Goldswain to, uh, to do like a five-minute cool musical background type thing so I can make uh, videos like this with this nice little music bed type thing uh, in the background because if I recall there's there's music behind this or at least there was the beginning I, who knows when I get started here it may be gone I don't know but alright let's take a listen one Calvinist apologist oh, Dr. James White comments on Isaiah 10 saying quote in one passage we have God's holy intention of judging his people through the means of Assyria yet God holds Assyria accountable for her sinful attitudes in being so used God judges them on the basis of their intentions. And since they come against Israel with a haughty attitude that does not recognize God's power and authority, they too are judged. This is compatibilism with clarity. God uses the sinful actions of the Assyrians for the good purpose of judging his people. Now, I'm just going to stop for a moment. If God intended to judge Israel when he judged Israel. Not a hundred years earlier, not a hundred years later. Could he have done so in Leighton Flowers' world? Could he have done so in Leighton Flowers' world? The hiss you're hearing is the high-speed fan on the, for some reason, the Mac is, is running like anything right now. I don't know why. There's, there may be a hung process someplace. I don't know. But it's, uh, it's feeling pretty warm, and the fan is on full. So I'm, I'm watching you in there. That's eh, probably what it is. Yeah, trying to find the, the 
and it's the the Mac is is not happy right now. Um, so, sorry, uh, got a little distracted there when I'm he's, he's doing this number thing. Where where is that sound coming from? It's coming from the coming from the computer. It's uh, nothing you can do about. It. Anyway, um, could God? How could God have judged Israel? At the time he desires to judge Israel to bring about prophetic fulfillment, if God is dependent upon the evil actions of men that are not a part of his decree. Because remember, the whole point of the provisionalist perspective is, yes, the Assyrian actions are evil. No, God had nothing to do with bringing them about. Nothing at all. He just uses them when he happens to see them. So where do they come from? They only come from the heart, the evil heart of the Assyrians. Therefore, they cannot be part of the decree, and therefore God's actions in time in judging Israel are dependent upon his being able to find somebody to use to judge Israel. And so he cannot do this upon a timetable. He cannot accomplish things at a particular point in time. How else can... I'd like to have an answer to that. How else... Could it be? How else could it be? So. Hmm. Oh, okay. I'm sitting here going, got quiet all of a sudden. I, I don't I don't know what happened. So I'll back it up here. Did you have it off? Oh, okay. Yet he judges the Assyrians for their sinful intentions. God's action in his sovereignty is perfectly compatible with the responsible and culpable actions of sinful men. Amen. End quote. <laughs> Provisionists like myself would agree that God used the evil intentions of the Assyrians to bring judgment on Israel. However, we do not believe that God, quote, sovereignly brought about those evil intentions. Thus, our view does not bring God's holiness into question or create issues with the concept of divine culpability. Okay, now... You, you say that God used the evil intentions of the Assyrians, but he didn't do so, do so sovereignly. He did so because he's looking around, and he wants to punish Israel for its sin, but he needs to find some way of doing it. And he can only do it when mankind allows him to do it by having somebody like the Assyrians come along that he can then entice into attacking Israel, because that's what he's going to say later on. So, the punishment of Israel has to wait for the opportune time for God to find somebody to do it. That's what we're being told. Yes, I know, this, 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 mean, this utterly means prophecy cannot happen. This is why open theists are the only consistent Arminians. And that is why I think if, if the Baptist faith and message had not specifically made open theism a no-no for Southern Baptists, I think that's exactly where Leighton would be. I really do. It would fit much better. But there he is. So, thus our view does not bring God's holiness into question. Why does my view bring God's holiness into question? Well, because you're saying that God uh, decreed evil actions. Yes, I, that's exactly what Acts chapter 4 says. That's, that's a straight-up statement. No question about it. But that does not mean that his holiness is in question because he does not 
put a gun behind someone who's innocent and say, do bad things. And it's only by insisting upon, well, it has to be one way or the other. God has to operate only in the strictures that I can understand as a temporal being. Therefore, there cannot be compatibilism. There cannot be the reality of the divine decree and human responsibility at the same time, because it, it's too big for the parameters I will allow God to exist in. That's the provisionalist argument. That God's too big. Too complicated for me, therefore he must not exist. Um, or create issues of the concept of divine culpability. Well, you have issues of divine culpability. Again, if you affirm, which I don't think you want to, but you have to, affirm that God knew exactly what the result of all of his creation was going to be, you've got the exact same issues. It's even worse. Because God knew that all this evil was going to exist, he had no purpose for it, and had no control over it. None whatsoever. There's some divine culpability for you. But one of you may say, surely Calvinists do not really teach that God sovereignly brings about every evil intention. Every. Do they? <laughs> every. Has God predetermined every tiny detail in the universe, such as dust particles in the air? And then I should add here, including all our besetting sins. Yes. In contrast, provisionism teaches that God allows or permits creation to act freely, as opposed to being causally determined by a divine, all-encompassing, meticulous decree. So God has no decree, but he has perfect knowledge of what takes place. So since there's no decree that what takes place takes place, what does take place arises out of the creation, unguided by God. Unguided by God. Now, by the way, um, since we're into making uh, connections with ancient religions, uh, could I point out that that actually sounds to me much more like the Gnostic understanding, where God emanates things and there's reactions from God, but there's no divine decree. But, hey, <laughs> that's easy to do, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. So, there is no, again, no logical way that I've ever heard to say, yes, God has exhaustive knowledge of all future events, but there's no divine decree. There's no way around the resultant idea that actions arise in of themselves, they are purposeless, but God brought it about when he created, because he knew that was going to, before he created, he knew that was going to be the end result. You see, the open theist goes, oh, no, he didn't. And so they can get around the culpability part. The person who tries to hold on to, yes, he did, know exactly what the result was going to be, is left going, so why should we glorify him for how it turned out? Because he's not the one that directed it there. Well, he nudged it. Every nudging involves the violation of free will, right? Uh, well, you know. And at times... God, being all-knowing, can and will use men's evil intentions to bring about his good purposes and plans. Listen, doesn't that sound wonderful? Especially with the... Oh, is that a heart back there? It sounds so nice, you know. Yeah, it's a sort of electric, electric piano type thing. Sounds great, doesn't it? See what's on the screen. Let's think about it. Let's think about what it means. And at times not of his choosing, being all-knowing, 
passively so, can and will, when he has to, use men's evil intentions to bring about his good purposes and plans, which are now made dependent upon what is provided to him to work with by the actions of free men. That's the rest of it that doesn't get expressed. He can't have purposes and plans in of himself. Oh, no, he can't. How could he? How could it have been God's eternal purpose to judge this generation of Israel that was judged by the Assyrians? How could he do that? Because he's dependent upon the evil intentions of the Assyrians, which do not arise from a divine decree. Now, I would argue that means he could not have known them anyways. But that's another issue. The point is, this position limits God's purposes and plans, his good purposes and plans, to what is provided to him by the creature. It's a huge cost for this stuff. Man-centered theology costs us not only a sovereign God, but a coherent God. God's wrath is often depicted in Scripture as God's permitting the natural consequences of moral evil, which is not a problem in a worldview where the moral evil is brought to pass by someone other than God. Now, did you catch that? Brought to pass by someone other than God. So, again, the argument being, we're not going to accept what Reformed theology teaches. And by the way, none of this has anything to do with Manichaeism at all. <laughs> just, just, so, just so you, We'll be documenting a little bit more of that here in a moment. Um, but what this demands is that you cannot have primary, primary and secondary causes, which is what Isaiah 10 is all about. You have primary and secondary causes in the Assyrians coming against Israel. And in the intention of the one, holiness and goodness, in the intention of the other, sin, judgment is brought about. That's the whole point. But when you a priori say that isn't possible, then you've got to turn the whole story around. You've got to turn it on its head. So instead of God acting sovereignly, wielding the axe of Isaiah 10, now you've got the provisionist where the axe is wielding God. Upside down can sound real good, especially when it's got music behind it. Oh, he's doing, he's, he's doing the voice I used to use when I would, when I would do a a program called Candlelight and Silver between 6 and 7 p.m. on KWAO Radio, FM 106.3, the home of the great entertainers in Sun City, Arizona, where during the dinner hour, I would play Montevani and Percy Faith, beautiful music by which you could dine. Yes, I can do that too. And then after 10 p.m., I would always use my better announcer voice so that you would trust what I was saying and it would also help you to go to sleep. <laughs> that's going to that's gonna get memed. <laughs> yes, Leighton, I can do it too. I'm a trained professional. Okay. Hey, no, no, no. God's wrath can literally be described as God separating himself from us so that we experience the natural consequences of our own free moral actions. Really? Okay, Um, there are times when the natural consequences of our sin are an expression of God's wrath. Um, Most of the plagues were not that. 
Most of the plagues were not that. So there are times when God's wrath is very much present and it's very much the expression of his just anger. So like, you know, hailstones and stuff like that, that's generally a good example where it's not just God separating himself from us. That is precisely what we see happening in Isaiah chapter 10. Ah, so I, are you hearing this? Isaiah 10, 15, God is wielding the axe. But they didn't read Isaiah 10, 15. They stopped before Isaiah 10, 15. Why? Because the way around it to decalvinize it, that is twisted into something it never ever said, the way around that is to make the Assyrians the source. And God is simply using what the Assyrians provide to him. See how this works? It sounds great. It's the exact opposite of what Isaiah was communicating. It's completely false, but it sounds great. And if you want to believe it, you'll find a way to believe it. Instead of protecting Israel from Assyria, which he promised to do if they remained obedient, God removes his hand of protection and permits the Assyrians to follow their own libertarianly free will. So, that axe swung itself. It was permitted to swing itself. Yeah, it was permitted. Because it wanted to. I mean, that axe had been trying to go for that tree for a long time. And it was permitted freely because it has libertarianly free will. That's what Isaiah is about. I, don't, I can't make this stuff up, folks. I just, I just report it to you. God does not cause or bring about the evil intentions of the Assyrians. So he is perfectly... Could he have suppressed the evil intentions of the Assyrians? I mean, it's their libertarianly free will to have evil intentions. So could God have kept them from doing that? Because that's what he'd have to be doing to fulfill his promise to keep Israel safe from its enemies, right? So he has to be able to do that, right? Oh, oh, oh. To judge them for their rebellious action, despite the fact that God used their rebellion to accomplish divine judgment on Israel for their own disobedience. The fact that God may have incited the already rebellious Assyrians to consider the already rebellious Israelites to be their next victims. Did you catch that? catch that? The fact that God may have incited, that's as close as you can get to wielding the axe and having a purpose is to incite the already rebellious Assyrians. I don't remember, did, did I miss incite? I, I didn't, I, 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 I'll have to go back and check the Hebrew on that. I, I don't, I don't remember that part. Yes, sir. Did you notice that he capitalizes his shoehorn words? Mm -hmm. I, I thought that's really interesting. Talk about a tell. Oh, yeah. You know, it's just like, oh, I put that word in there. Yeah, and I'm capitalizing it to tell you I put that word in oh, there. Oh, yeah. Anyway, well, just, well, just, okay. <laughs> yeah, so God may have incited the already rebellious Assyrians. We're, we don't you know, substantiate that anywhere, but he may have. Yeah, it's possible. Does not negate the Israelite 
and Assyrian people's individual responsibility in becoming rebellious to begin with. Yeah, you know, part of the question is, why would both of them be rebellious? Maybe it has something to do with their relationship to Adam. Hmm. Oh, can't have that. <laughs> can't, can't have that. But again, just, th- just think, folks. All of this to say that God's judgment of Israel in Isaiah chapter 10, in that particular historical incident, was completely dependent upon the provision of the opportunity made by the Assyrians and the Israelites. God could not have done it at that time any other way. All came from them. All came from them. A lot of ramifications for that. Would Calvinists have us believe that God, quote, sovereignly brought about the disobedience of the Israelites and the Assyrians so as to use the Assyrians' disobedient actions to judge the Israelites' disobedient actions? Um, much better would be, would Calvinists have us believe that apart from God's grace, mankind will live in constant rebellion? Yeah. God doesn't have to create rebellion. God does have to create obedience and submission because of the fall. Because in Christianity, there is really a fall. Not like in Manichaeism and all this, that there's no fall there, but there is a fall in Christianity, and the result impacts everyone, and God is regularly suppressing man's evil so as to accomplish his own purpose and his decree. Um, And there is no such thing as libertarianly free will, (laughs) except for God. What would be the point in that? We do affirm that God may use the free rebellious actions of some to bring about the discipline or judgment of others. Which means he cannot discipline or judge others unless given the opportunity by the rebellion of autonomous, libertarianly free creatures. Right? I'm not trying to make this up. Right? That seems to be what you're saying. God's just doing the best he can with what he's given. All right, just as long as everybody knows what's being said. But we vehemently reject the notion that our thrice holy God brings about the rebellion of morally sinful creatures. Even though he created, knowing it was going to happen, he has no purpose in it. And it actually arises from something outside of himself. Just, just let's lay all of it outside. According to James chapter 1, he does not even tempt men to do evil much less sovereignly and unchangeably determined that they will. Is that what James was talking about? Or is he talking to human beings about blaming God for their own following of their own intentions? That'd be like the Assyrian king blaming God that he was arrogant in thinking that he was the one who submitted all those cities. Well, that's your fault. No, God does not accept that kind of an argument, because God does not reveal to us what his purposes are. The creature cannot make appeal to knowledge that was not his. God the judge knows the hearts, and that's the basis upon which he judges. So that's not even what James is talking about. James is ta- James does talk about the, the, the father of lights and all good gifts and everything else, but he's not giving a discussion of Assyria 
compatibilism or anything else. He is talking on a very practical level to people who are trying to excuse their sin by blaming it on something other than their own lusts. 1 John 2.16 teaches us, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. Well, there's, a, again, a text that's not talking about the application being made, unless you're trying to say that the world is... Well, I, hey, you know, we could fit this into the Manichaean uh, uh, viewpoint, if you'd like to. Since it seems to be all the rage today, uh, if we identified the world as the world of darkness and the Father is the Father of light, um, then I suppose we could somehow try to cram that in there if we wanted to. But the reality is the world here is the world in opposition to God. And he's talking to Christians as to how Christians are to live. That's why he says anyone who loves the world, love of the Father does not dwell in him. So world for John, hmm, this is cosmos, and it evidently isn't the, the same world as John 3.16, is it? It's not every single human being. In fact, it's not human beings at all, really. It is that world system that stands in opposition to God, that is in rebellion against God, that is fallen. That's what it's talking about. It's not saying... God didn't know any of this. In fact, I think that's coming up. Let's see if, the, if that's, that might be the next one. It seems to be my, my recollection. Calvinism claims all things yeah, are brought about by God's sovereign, meticulous decree. But the scripture says that pride and lust are not from the Father, but from the world. From the website of the late R.C. Sproul, a prominent Calvinistic apologist, Lingonair Ministries writes, God has planned or decreed all things and thus they surely take place as he has planned, decreed, or ordained them." End quote. Because they have filled this place with the blood of innocence and have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or decree, nor did it come into my mind. So Calvin... Now, there is no, there's no exegesis offer there, but let me roll it back here. Jeremiah chapter 19. This is one of the primary open theist proof texts. That's why I think, I really think, if the Baptist faith and message didn't, that that's where Leighton would be, because that's where he wants to be. Because he keeps using stuff like this. So, uh, which I did not command a decree, nor did it come into my mind. So, if you believe God has exhausted knowledge of future events, this obviously isn't talking about that, is it? That's what the open theists say. See, it did not come into his mind. He did not know that there would be the offerings on the high places or the offerings to Baal or Moloch or whatever the particular incidents might be. When God created, he didn't know it was going to happen. Because Leighton Flowers works for a Southern Baptist entity, he can't say that. So what has he got to do? Yes, he knew, but that actually arises from something outside of God. There is a secondary source for the existence of these things, outside of God, and it's the libertarian free will of man. And so, the command or decree is the eternal decree. Well, the problem with that is command. That's his law. God did not tell the people of Israel. He did not contain in his law commandments or decrees to offer their children sacrifice. That's all it's saying. When it says it did not come into my mind, 
That's not saying God never thought about it, never knew it was going to happen. What he's saying is this type of evil is so far removed from me and so far removed from my law that it is disgusting. And yet these people are claiming religious authority for me to do it. That's the consistent interpretation. That's the one that actually allows all of the scriptures to stand together. That's not really common to, for people to do that much anymore, but that's, that's what it is. So why use open theist proof texts, I wonder? Well, yeah, well, you can decide for yourself. Command or decree, nor did it come into my mind. So Calvinism says God decreed all things. But God says, through the prophet Jeremiah, I did not command or decree that nor did it enter into my mind. Okay, absolutely false argument, very shallow. This is common type of stuff. You look at the context, you realize what it's actually talking about. You can see the mixture of categories, this type of common error. We've been dealing with this for years, but this was only produced, I think, last week. Or within the past couple of days. I could go back and look at the, at the date. Demonstrating that God knows and uses evil intentions of men does not prove divine determinism or what some call compatibilism. It only demonstrates his omniscience and his sovereign ability to bring about his purposes through the free choices of creatures. And what is the ultimate authority for the provisionalists? The free choices of creatures. And I have people who get angry at me because I say man-centeredness versus God-centeredness. Right on the screen, right in front of you. We just walked through it, played it, allowed you to see for yourself. Allowed you to see for yourself. So there you go. Uh, Listen to two while putting up something to protect the eastern wall of my house from the scorching Phoenix sun, uh, which is already scorching and it's going to be scorching into October. Yay. Did I. Stumble on and oh, you mean the the sound in the background, the music in the background? Well, as I said, I, I we could find somebody to do that for us. We could find someone that could do the, you know, the little piano thing. Just yeah, wind chimes would be nice. Something you know, something that makes it sound better when you're okay. I, I shouldn't say it. Okay. All right. Now I promised to continue on page thirty six of Ken Wilson's dissertation, but, but, something came in the mail. I got something in the mail. I think there's still a couple things yet to come, but this finally came. Um, I, obviously, dealing with something that someone has written who has spent more than a year with the library at Oxford at one's fingertips. Um, you can't go quite as fast. You can't look things up as quickly. I think we've done a pretty good job so far. I was reading on page 284 of the dissertation. It's in the conclusion. The following paragraph. Now, just to give you context, in the conclusion, uh, Ken Wilson really goes after Augustine, just really seeks to destroy his credibility, attack him on every level, on every every possible level. He really does. And in that process, 
you have this paragraph, quote, while denying that Donatists and Arians were ever Christians, except technically due to their baptisms, Augustine never denies this to Manichaeans, designating himself as a Christianus Catholicus, Catholic Christian. L- listen, from the implied Christianus Manichaeanus, or stated pseudo-Christianus. Three references are giving. Three references are given. We're going to look at all three of them in just a moment. Continues. This could explain why Porphyry could consider Christians the same as Manichaeans and how Brown can identify Manichaeans as radical Christians and even self-designated true Christians with Faustus exemplifying Reformed Christianity. For Augustine, quote, now here is, this is why I ordered this book. For Augustine, comma, quote, to become a Manichae was to depart little, if at all, from being a Christian, end quote. Then a footnote. Now that struck me. Before I even looked up the references to Augustine's works, for Augustine, quote, to become a Manichae was to depart little, if at all, from being a Christian, end quote. Now, the way that is written is communicating that that's Augustine's understanding. That Augustine either said or intimated or taught to become a Manichae was to depart little, if at all, from being a Christian. Now, I've read enough of Augustine to know that simply wasn't true. But it serves Wilson's purpose at this point. So, the reference was to John O'Meara, the young Augustine, Introduction to the Confessions of St. Augustine. So, I don't know, about two weeks or so ago when I was working on this, what I do is I run into these, I sort of look at them, how important is it? And then when it's like, yeah, I really want to check this out, then I see if it's purchasable. I obviously look for it online. I look at Google Books, see if I can find the quotes. There's, there's various ways of trying to track stuff down that uh, earlier editions are being cited and are no longer available and stuff like that. We're helping to keep a few... Um, uh, used bookstores going uh, during the uh, Depression. Uh, but if I decide that, yeah, it's something I want, um, then I will uh, send the link to Rich, and 10 days later, two weeks later, whenever, there it is. There it is. So, did Augustine say to become a manichae was to depart little of it all from being a Christian? Or is that what somebody else said Augustine was himself saying? This, I think, is one of the more insightful revelations as to how Ken Wilson utilizes sources. And it substantiates what I've been saying all along. That's why I wanted to start with that today, because it just came in the mail. Story time with Uncle Jimmy. What we have in O'Meara's work 
is a description of the Manichaean religion um, and the fall, not of mankind, uh, but the creation and things like that. And then you have the description, this was very interesting, of the elect and the hearers. Now, Manny organized his religion very, very specifically. Interestingly enough, you have the leader, you have 12, you have 72, then you have 365. Or was it 360? Anyway. So you have a real hierarchical, organized system, which helped the religion survive as long as it did in light of the fact that it obviously had a different manifestation in the East than it did in the West, because, you know, you've got Buddha on one side and Jesus on the other side and things like that. Um, but also due to the fact that its leaders could not procreate. And that's never been good for any religion for long-term existence. Just, just hasn't. So, Augustine became a hearer or an auditor. He was not one of the elect. Now, of course, the whole use of the, of the terminology of the elect in Manichaeism, something that's brought up by certain people for some strange reason. But the reality is, in Manichaeism, there is no divine decree. None. So, the selection of the elect is human. It is of the will within the parameters of a mechanistic determinism that is based upon the Manichaean mythology. There are different kinds of men. And that has to do with the evil material body trapping the light, amount of light, stuff like that. It has nothing, there's no connection to unconditional election or anything like that as far as God's purposes, self-revelation, none of that kind of stuff. It's, it's wild and wacky. So what Omira is doing is he's giving background to the confessions, so he's giving background to Augustine's uh, introduction to Manichaeism, and so he's, he's describing Manichaeism. So remember, Augustine's never one of the elect. As I mentioned Tuesday, I think, in the program, Monday or Tuesday, um, the Manichaean elect could not engage in um, sexuality, they could not engage in violence, they could not eat vast majority of human foods. Um, their food had to be provided to them by the auditors, by the hearers. It had to be prepared in a very special way so that their purified bodies became the redemptive mechanism that frees the light from the vegetables and plants that are feed, fed to them by the hearers. That light is then released, Milky Way, Moon, Sun, Kingdom of Light. Okay, this is, this is what redemption is, is releasing of the light particles. Remember the primeval man? 
first stage of the battle when the kingdom of darkness attacks kingdom of light by a evil man is captured. He allows some of his light substance to be captured and then is brought back um, to the to the realm of light. And now the whole rest of it is getting the rest of his light back. So, um, let me read a little bit from John O'Meara here. Manichaean eschatology. Hey, here we go. It took something like this to get me to discuss eschatology. Manichaean eschatology centers around the destiny and duties of three classes of men. The Manichaean elect, Manichaean hearers or auditors or aspirants, and the wicked. Hey, I thought of something. In Jehovah's Witness eschatology, you have the 144,000, you have the great crowd, you got everybody else. No, there's no connection, but it is interesting. The elect, who can be men, women, or even children, are few in number, practice all the obligations of Manichaeism as perfectly as possible, and are destined to, at death to enter the kingdom of God. That is, their light is released back into the kingdom of light. They are enrolled as elect when they receive the Manichaean baptism and live henceforth a life of poverty and asceticism. There is no selecting of them by the divine will of the kingdom of light. A member of the elect observes with the greatest scrupulosity the three seals, which were mouth, hand, and bosom, I think. He would die sooner than eat even a fish. He could do no violence to anything and would rather starve than pluck an apple. He lives the life of the most absolute chastity. The pallor of his face is an indication of the sanctity of his life. When he eats fruit, it must be supplied to him by others, and then he thinks only releasing from the fruit the divine substance within it, the light. He is bound, in fact, to eat every particle of such food as it is brought to him and allow none of it to perish. And while he eats, he prays and hymns the Lord. So you had to eat everything, even if you didn't like it, because it had been prepared so that you could release the light by digesting it. So that gives new meaning to finish your plate, Jimmy. <laughs> my, my parents hadn't come, didn't come up with that one. I remember my parents' one, there's, children's, there's children starving in Africa. That was that was what they, they ever did that to you. You got China. Okay, all right. Well, mine. <laughs> well, there were, but it didn't have anything to do with what you were doing. But they didn't care. They still put the guilt trip on me. Some of the elect do more than sanctify themselves. They attempt the salvation of their neighbors. Some become deacons, others priests. Over these are seventy-two bishops, and over these again twelve masters. Again, finally, a representative of many presides over all. It is evident that the mere statement of the requirements of the perfect Manichee, that most Manichees were never full Manichees and were, in fact, merely aspirants. These were called the auditors or hearers. That's what Augustine was for nine years. The auditors were unwilling, at yet at any rate, to follow the life perfectly. Hence their name, for not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified, Romans 2.13. Talk about having absolutely nothing to do with the original context. Nevertheless, they do observe certain obligations. They profess the faith and pray the Father, Son, Holy Ghost, none of which means the same thing as in Christianity. They pay a special devotion to the sun and moon. They take part in all the religious exercises of their church and obey the ordinary precepts of the gospel, their gospel. 
As for the rest, they do what little they can to imitate the elect. They do not, ob- they do not observe the seal of the mouth, for they eat meat and drink wine. All the same, they do fast severely from time to time. They do not observe the seal of the hand, for they practice as farmers, take part in public life, and aspire to honors. Some of them are even butchers. Here, however, they turn their imperfections to good account, for they procure food and other things for the elect, whose lot without them would indeed be heroic. Nor do they observe the seal of the bosom, for they marry. They try, however, to limit the evil effects that result from doing these things. They have one serious inescapable obligation, never to be the direct instrument of giving food to anyone not of their faith. I didn't know about that till this. To do so is to deliver the divine substance, the light, in the food into the hands of devils. If a starving man appeals to them, they can give him money, but not food. On the other hand, they do well to bring food to the elect who pray for them. When they die, the auditors, the hearers, do not go directly to the kingdom of light. They acquire new bodies in the cycle of existence. If they have lived well according to their state, they will merit to become members of the elect. Notice how you become part of the elect? You merit it. You merit it. How did, how did Augustine get election unto life from that? Well, not They will merit to become members of the elect in their new life, and so will enjoy release in due course. If they have lived badly, they'll become a plant or tree and have the further disadvantage of being able to... (laughs) Check check this out. I never even thought about this. (laughs) Uh, If they have lived badly, they'll become a plant or tree and have the further disadvantage of being able to hear the word of God without being able to do anything about it. So that potted plant in your church might have been a former hearer that's come back and now is hearing the word of God, but can't do anything about it. That poor plant. (laughs) Oh, no. All right. Um, An elect, however, by eating the plant may free them. (laughs) So you can always hope that if you come back as a plant, you'll get eaten by one of the elect. But if they have been so bad as to deserve to become an animal, then they have little hope of salvation, for no elect may eat of an animal. The wicked are not all equally culpable. This is a third group. Some err in ignorance, others by imprudence, others still through malice. The first only have only to be shown their mistake, and they will reform and be forgiven. The second group are more culpable, but even they are forgiven for the Manichees follow Christ's instru- injunction to forgive him who repents even 70 times 7. The third group are lost forever. All mankind will appear for the last judgment when those who belong to the devil will be told to depart to him as the king of darkness. That judgment will take place only when all those who dedicate themselves to God have entered the kingdom of light. Then there will be an immense conflagration. Whatever divine substance remains will be collected into the realm of light and the two kingdoms of good and evil will, as in the beginning, be separate and apart once more. So, Back to the initial state. All the light in one place, all the darkness in another place. Could it start all over again? I don't know. Here's the last paragraph. Here's where the quote came from. From the foregoing, it is possible to see how, in spite of the enormous difference in the doctrines which they professed. So what was this? This was the description of their lifestyles. Okay? The lifestyles uh, of the elect sort of looked a little bit like 
monks and things like that. No marriage, strict dieting, things like that. But even the hearers had certain rules they had to live by. Okay. So from the foregoing, it is possible to see how, in spite of the enormous difference in the doctrines which they professed, Manichees, who were content to remain auditors, that is, hearers, could seem to differ little in practice from ordinary Christians. In a sense, it might seem that to become a Manichee was to depart little, if at all, from being a Christian. Paragraph closed. Did you catch that? There's the quote. That's the reference. Let me let, me let you... Okay, here was... Here's Wilson's use. For Augustine, comma, quote, to become a manichee was to depart little, if at all, from being a Christian. Reference? This book. This page. Actual reference? What was really said? From the foregoing, it is possible to see how, in spite of the enormous difference in the doctrines which they professed, manichees who were content to remain auditors could seem to differ little in practice from ordinary Christians. In a sense, it might seem that become a manichee was to depart little, if at all, from being a Christian. That's indefensible. That is indefensible. Completely and totally indefensible. I understand that Dr. Wilson has been doing responses, haven't looked at AM yet. I think it's a distraction from digging this stuff out. But that's indefensible. That's not what this says. Neither are any of the references that were given. So, before that misuse, it says for Augustine. Had nothing to do with Augustine. It was not a quotation of Augustine. It was not a reference to Augustine at all. Had nothing to do with the subject at all. Total misuse of a citation. Now, how many... Let me ask one question of every one of you provisionalists out there that have been touting this dissertation as the be-all and end-all of all things. How many of you looked that reference up? Not a one of you. Did you? Not a one of you. Of course not. You just believed it. How about the rest of them? How about the beginning of the paragraph? While denying that Donatists and Arius were ever Christian... Arians were ever Christians, except technically due to their baptism. Augustine never denies this to Manichaeans. Designating himself as a Christianus Catholicus from the implied Christianus Manichaeanus or stated pseudo-Christianus. Now, I'm willing to bet that Augustine never, ever, ever implied or said Christianus Manichaeanus. Because he didn't say it in any of the references that were given. How do I know that? Because I looked them up. First reference given, the use of the creed. Here is the quote. I have a, I'm not sure how long I'll be able to go here. I have a package sitting on my front porch right now. The wife's not home. It's perishable, and it's going to be a pile of goo by the time I get home. It's 105 degrees outside. It's already done. But anyway, um, it is then my purpose to prove to you, if I can, this is Augustine, 
that the Manichees profanely and rashly inveigh against those who, following the authority of the Catholic faith, before that they are able to gaze upon that truth, with the pure mind beholds, are by believing forearmed and prepared for God, who is, who is about to give them light. For you know, Honoratus, he's writing to someone who has gotten involved with Manichaeism, that for no other reason we fell in with such men, we, because he was a Manichaean, then because they used to say that apart from all terror of authority, by pure and simple reason, they would lead us within to God and set free from all error those who were willing to be their hearers. So in other words, Augustine is saying, they really applied, they, they, what appealed to me was their appeal to reason and that they would not appeal to authority. Um, for what else constrained me during nearly nine years, spurning the religion which had been set in me from, my, from a child by my parents, because he was raised as a Christian, to be a follower and diligent hearer of those men, save that they said that, that we are alarmed by superstition and are commanded to have faith before reason, but that they urge no one to have faith without having first discussed and made clear the truth? Who would not be enticed by such promises, especially the mind of a young man desirous of the truth, and further a proud and talkative mind by discussions of certain learned men in the school, such as they then found me disdainful forsooth as of old wives' fables and desirous to grasp and drink in what they promised, the open and pure truth? But what reason, on the other hand, recalled me, not to be altogether joined to them, so that I continued in that, in that rank which they call hearers, so that I resign not the hope and business of this world, save that I notice that they also are rather eloquent and full in refutation of others, than abide firm and sure in proof of what is their own. But of myself, what shall I say, who was already a Catholicus Christianus, a Catholic Christian? Treats which now, after very long thirst, I almost exhausted and dry, have returned to with all greediness and with deeper weeping and groaning, have shaken together and wrung them out more deeply, that so there might flow that which might be enough to refresh me, affected as I was, and to bring back hope of life and safety. What then shall I say of myself? You, not yet a Christian, who through encouragement from me, execrating them greatly as you did, were hardly led to believe that you ought to listen to them and make trial of them. By what else, I pray you, were you delighted? Call to mind, I entreat you, save by a certain grand presumption and promise of reasons. But because they disputed long and much with very great copiousness and vehemence concerning the errors of unlearned men, a thing which I learned too late at length to be most easy for any moderately educated man, if even of their own they implanted in us anything, we thought that we were obliged to retain it insomuch as there fell not in our way other things wherein to acquiesce. So they did in our case what crafty fowlers are wont to do, who set branches smeared with bird lime besides water to deceive thirsty birds. For they fill up and cover anyhow the other waters which are around, or fright, the, fright them from fright them from them by alarming devices that they may fall into their snares, not through choice, but want. There's the first reference. There's the only reference to Catholic Christian. There's nothing about Christian Manichae there. Notice he said implied. It's not implied anywhere. All he's doing is saying, this is what attracted me. I had been raised in one. I had been raised in an unlearned fashion. I thought there were fables and stories. 
They promised truth. For nine years I listened. Then I learned otherwise. That's the first reference. Nothing there about saying that Manichaeans are Christians. Nothing. Next reference. Against the epistle of Manichaeus called Fundamental. Quote, this is the reference given by Wilson. On the other hand, all must allow that you owe it to me in return to lay aside all arrogance on your part so that you may be the more disposed to gentleness and may not oppose me in a hostile spirit to your own hurt. Let neither of us assert that he has found truth. Let us seek it as if it were unknown to us both. For truth can be sought with zeal and, u- and unanimity if by no rash presumption it is believed to have been already found and ascertained. But if I cannot induce... By the way, I would disagree with Augustine at that point vehemently. But if I cannot induce you to grant me this, at least allow me to suppose myself a stranger now for the first time hearing you, for the first time examining your doctrines. I think my demand a just one. But it must be laid down as an understood thing that I am not to join you in your prayers or in holding conventicles, or in taking the name of Manichaeus, unless you give me a clear explanation without any obscurity of all matters touching the salvation of the soul. Is there anything there that would substantiate the assertion of Manichaean Christian? To substantiate, because what he's saying is, Augustine said the Arians and Adonatus weren't Christians, but he never said that the Manichaeans weren't. He implied that they were. No implications so far, huh? Nope. All right, he gave a third reference. Here's the third, here's the third one against Faustus, 1-3. This is Augustine's response to Faustus. And this one actually argues against his point, so I'm not even sure why I put it there. But anyway, you warn against semi-Christians, which you say we are. But we warn against pseudo-Christians, which we have shown you to be. Because he said, stated, pseudo. Well, that's what he says, stated. Semi-Christianity may be imperfect without being false. So then, if the faith of those whom you try to mislead is imperfect, would it not be better to supply what is lacking than to rob them of what they have? It was to imperfect Christians that the apostle wrote, joying and beholding your conversation and deficiency in your faith in Christ, references given. The apostle had in view a spiritual structure, as he says elsewhere, you are God's building. And in this structure, he found both a reason for joy and a reason for exertion. He rejoiced to see part already finished and the necessity of bringing the edifice to perfection called for exertion. Imperfect Christians as we are, you pursue us with a desire to pervert what you call our semi-Christianity by false doctrine. While even those who are so deficient in faith as to be unable to reply to all your sophisms are wise enough at least to know that they must not have anything at all to do with you. You look for semi-Christians to deceive. We wish to prove you pseudo-Christians, that Christians may learn something from your refutation, and that the less advanced may learn to avoid you. Do you call us children the serpent? You have surely forgotten how often you have found fault with the prohibition in paradise and have praised the serpent for opening Adam's eyes. You have the better claim to the title which you give us. The serpent owns you as well when you blame him as when you praise him. End quote. Remember, in both in Gnosticism and in Manichaeism, partaking of the knowledge of fruit and evil, in fact, it's Jesus the Splendor that convinces Adam and Eve to eat of the fruit so they can realize they have light trapped within them and seek a way of salvation. So that's what he's referring to there at the end. Now, once again, 
to every one of you provisionists. Did you ever look these things up? Leighton, did you ever look these things up? Did, did you look at the references? Find out what the book was. Look it up. Almost all of this is in the, in the shaft set. Sometimes you got to go looking for something else. But it's almost all there. I have it all in accordance, personally. Did you ever look it up? Or did you just accept it? That entire paragraph should be struck and would have been struck by anyone actually reading this thing to any depth whatsoever in challenging it. It's prejudicial. It is misinterpreting and misusing three different references from Augustine. And the citation from Amira is simply mark that out, remove it. Wrong. Acontextual, completely prejudicial, and in error. How do you answer that? I, I, here's the book. How do you answer? I read you everything that came before it. In fact, if you get, well, what, what came after it? Well, that was the end of a chapter. The next chapter uh, is Augustine enrolling as, enrolling as an auditor. Um, so, nothing there. Nothing there. Well, that's all you found. No, it's not. I've got pages of this stuff. I've got pages of this stuff. Most of it, you know, I've, I've already written up some things. We've gotten, you know, I, I read you what culture and philosophy in the age of Plotinus had said. We've already put some of the stuff on the website. Um, but most of this is just going to the original source in Augustine. And it's like, uh, that's not what he said. Uh, nope, that's, nope, that doesn't substantiate either. Oh, wow. This is just a incredibly prejudiced reading of Augustine. It's like, it's like somebody sat down with Augustine and said, how can I prove Augustine was a bad guy? And I've got a year to do it at Oxford. Ben the well, just hope the readers believe what I have to say because I went to Oxford. Oh, yeah, no kidding. That I do not yet understand though I would love to find out what department this was in. If this was in philosophy, I'd get it. i get it. I cannot, I, I cannot conceive of someone in the history department letting this, letting this go by. I really, really can't. Really can't. Well, anyway, so I still haven't gotten to where we were yesterday <laughs> or on uh, Tuesday. Sorry. Um, but hey, if something comes in the mail, you got to open the mail, right? And I got something cool in the mail. Yeah, go ahead and read it for yourself. I might scan that page. How, how, I might scan that page. We might post it with the... How's that, how's that sound? Yeah, just to make sure. So you can read it for yourself. Read it for yourself. Okay, um, tomorrow um, I would like to have some open phones. Um, and we have to go early. Because I'm doing Iron Sharpens Iron tomorrow. And that's 1 to 3. Our time. Yeah, it's 4 to four to 6. Right. So since I'm going to be on Iron Sharpens Iron tomorrow, we've got to go early. Um, 11 to eh, 
We'll go. We'll start at a half hour. How's that sound? And we'll open the phones up at the beginning, and then do a certain number of calls, and then I'll continue on with what I've promised to do. Um, and again, you might say, "Oh, you're just getting so many weeds." Yeah, but there's so much stuff that we're learning. I mean, I just learned today. I did not know that the hearers could not give food to a non-Manichaean. But it makes sense, because if there's light in the food, then how could you do that? Yeah, that, you're just continuing its enslavement. So, yeah, makes sense. It's, learn something every day. <laughs> you might go, but I'm not sure I really want to learn all that. <laughs> Just think how educated you're going to be. Educated by the time we get done. So, anyways, thanks for watching the program today. We will see you tomorrow, Lord willing. God bless.